Please be seated. Turn uh, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Our passage this morning initiates a, a new section in Isaiah in which Isaiah delivers a series of oracles. These oracles are individual but connected prophetic messages, and they're delivered to a series of different audiences. And these oracles will continue to examine uh, God's sovereignty, his plan for history, looking at that plan from the various angles of these different audiences of the oracles, Babylon, Philistia, Moab, and so on and so on. But naturally, these uh, oracles are also given to God's people. They are also the intended audience of these various oracles, and they are a great help and a necessity for God's people. They're a necessity for us. Many of us have believed since we were on our mother's knee that we have a sovereign God, a God who exercises control over all people, over all places, over all time. The problem is that every single time a new crisis arises, a global pandemic, a rising power, changing winds of social discourse, suddenly we forget that God is sovereign. Suddenly we start panicking and acting as though we need to be in control. Calvin says it this way, there is nothing of which it is more difficult to convince men than that the providence of God governs this world. Many indeed acknowledge it in words, but very few have actually engraven on their heart. We tremble and shudder at the very smallest change, and we inquire into the causes as if it depended on the decision of men. The recipients of these oracles, who they are given to, represent peoples and powers that Judah might have been tempted to treat as though they were the ones in control of history, either by fearing them or running to them. So while we hear God speak to many nations, many peoples, he's also speaking to us to think about every single worldly power, system, ideology that we allow to threaten our confidence or perhaps that we try and put our confidence in and see them in light of what God himself has planned for history. If we are thinking about peoples and powers that might have threatened the confidence of God's people, it seems only natural that the first audience of an oracle from Isaiah is Babylon. So let's take a look at what God has to say to Babylon. Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
from the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger, like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them. Each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in its pleasant places, palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Our first point this morning is this. The day of the Lord is coming for Babylon and every Babylon after it. At this point in Israel's history, Babylon is not actually the greatest threat to Judah. It was Assyria that was still the major power, even technically over Babylon, though Babylon was rising up as a threat. So why then would the Lord address this oracle about the fall of worldly powers to Babylon? There are some enemies whom God uses in such an integral way in the history of his people that they gain a typological significance through which God's people can understand many enemies and trials. A great example of this is, of course, Egypt. Just as Exodus becomes representative of the freedom and salvation God extends to his people throughout their history, likewise, Egypt becomes a constant reminder of the place of slavery God frees us from, even from sin and death. This is also true of Babylon. It fills a very similar role in scripture. The history of Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, to King Nimrod. My dad used to call me Nimrod. You can guess how I was behaving when he did. But Nimrod, uh, despite what his name suggests, was a famously powerful man. He founded both Babylon and Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And the first real incarnation of Babylon that we see as a kingdom was that great city which started constructing the Tower of Babel. Babel was meant to be this act of human-wide defiance against God and his will. They were rejecting God's command to fill the whole earth, to be fruitful and multiply. Instead, they said, let's come and consolidate all our gifts and see the biggest monument we can build to ourselves rather than carrying out God's plan. This monument to human ability and power and self-sufficiency. That is essentially the founding of Babylon in scripture. Alec Mateer calls Babylon the ancient locus of arrogant self-sufficiency. 
Now, remember when the prophet Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue depicting a succession of empires. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was the golden head. All of the empires after it, including Rome, diminish in glory, even if they are also powerful. So Babylon remains the prototypical picture of humanism, of trusting in human might and human ability and pride. We see Babylon echoed again and again in Rome, in the Renaissance, in Napoleon, and on and on. So for Isaiah to speak of Babylon, is for him to speak, yes, of an actual individual people who are going to suffer a very specific fate that Isaiah properly predicts here. But he is also speaking to anyone who would rise up against God's plan and against God's people, including the Assyrian Empire that was currently opposing God's people when this oracle was given. And we'll see that Assyria does in fact appear within this oracle. So for God to promise in this oracle that he's going to utterly overthrow Babylon was for God to promise that every wicked endeavor to defy his rule would be overthrown. That is what God has been doing as far back as Babel. When that great monument to human achievement in a moment, descended into confusion. We see this, this overthrow, and what it means for both Babylon and for every Babylon after it, when we ask the question, when is it meant to come about? Within this chapter, Isaiah rightly tells us how the historical Babylonian empire will fall and says that that will happen soon. God says he's stirring up foreign armies, including the Medes against Babylon, not Ali and Jen. They are not single-handedly responsible for the overthrow of Babylon. The Medes were also uh, one of the armies who, along with the Persians, did indeed come and overthrow Babylon. God brought about that judgment while Judah was still in exile in Babylon. By the end of the book of Daniel, you'll remember, Darius the Mede is sitting on the throne. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it's Cyrus of Persia who sends God's people back to Judah. So Isaiah also tells us that Babylon itself, the city, will become a wilderness like Sodom and Gomorrah. And this indeed also came about. While ancient cities like Rome and Damascus have persisted, there's still places that you can go and see. Powers changed hands, but the city is still there. There is nothing left of Babylon. It is a wasteland. So Isaiah, in this oracle, makes true promises about the overthrow of the Babylonian empire. Yet just like other prophecies that we have already encountered, that initial fulfillment deliberately leaves something wanting. It points to a greater fulfillment that will come later. We already saw this, remember, of the prophecy of the child who would be born of the virgin in chapter 7. That prophecy was tied to a pending invasion from Assyria, and it was fulfilled in the day of Isaiah. But it left a longing for a greater fulfillment, which came about at the birth of Jesus uh, from the Virgin Mary. So similar here, the historical overthrow of Babylon is properly pictured in this prophecy, but there seems to be something bigger, something more cosmic that is being looked forward to. And Isaiah talks here about the day of the Lord. If you look at other prophets like Amos, you understand that this is nothing less than God's great day of judgment when God carries out his justice before 
the final state of his creation. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't other times in history when people experience a day of the Lord. There are times in scripture where God says he comes and visits peoples, cities, empires, individuals with judgment. These judgments have cataclysmic, even eschatological attributes. So the kingdom of Babylon did definitely experience a day of the Lord, but that was a day looking forward to a greater fulfillment. As proud Babylon became a type of the pride in the human heart, so does its fall represent the overthrow of every attempt at human defiance of God and pride, whether it's nations, ideologies, social movements. In Revelation, the city of Rome, the current power, while that book is being written, gets called Babylon. And this was meant to show both how Rome had become proud like Babylon and also that it would fall like Babylon. But all of those fulfillments, the fall of Babylon, even the fall of Rome, compound and look towards and point towards and build towards that pending cataclysmic judgment on the day of the Lord. Isaiah tells us what that day will look like. The Lord calls many armies to this cataclysmic battle. And though the Lord is sovereign over this battle, we see that this muster includes no righteous men. They are called consecrated in a way holy, but remember holy means set apart. In this case, it is not righteousness. It is not goodness, which sets these people apart. It is that the Lord has said, I have a plan that will absolutely be carried out in what happens through these people. But God is not controlling their actions like a puppet master. He is letting them loose to commit the actions that would naturally have flown from their sinful hearts. Their wickedness builds up until God allows it to be let loose. And this is a part of his judgment on them. Their sinful hearts descend into a terrible wickedness, which fills the world from which no one seems to be able to escape. This was the fate of Babylon in ancient times, but so, and so will it be the fate of every impersonator of Babylon until this culminates in the great final day of the Lord. God will see to it that the arrogance and wickedness of these people will be a means by which judgment is brought upon them. This picture of the day of the Lord culminates in the heavens themselves experiencing God's judgment. Verse 10 says, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now, this also would have served in part as a warning to the historic Babylonian empire. They worshiped many of these heavenly bodies. And on the day that they fell, their gods failed them. They were silent. But this also looks forward to a day when God's judgment will indeed be calamitous and comprehensive. If God will bring about a day when even the stars will not shine, what will happen on that day to us who have proudly shaken our fists at God. Just like the silent gods of Babylon, that day of judgment is going to reveal the power of just one God, just one real God. And it will expose the futility and the powerlessness of every other thing that people have tried to put their trust in, idols, powers, or themselves. So there is a warning here to everyone who tries to fit themselves into the mold of Babylon. Everyone who stands before God and erects a tower of Babel in their heart, who takes 
uh, being made as an image bearer who takes the gifts that God has given them and says, I am awesome. I should sit in the judgment seat and judge God. Who is God to tell me what I should do or who I should be or what is right or wrong? This is a warning to emperors and kings and queens and you and me. Our pride will compound into wickedness, into foolishness. And the more proud we are, the more it will direct us to our own destruction. Do we not see that already in our own proud culture and the backwards folly that is starting to grow and grow here? And all of this pride and wickedness leading to folly and sin will culminate in the final day when God will bring catastrophic eternal judgment on all of his enemies. Following this warning, Isaiah goes on to explain that God has a purpose for this judgment beyond only punishing his enemies. And we see that in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them on their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. This is a short section of a long oracle, but we find it pretty much exactly in the middle, which is where prophets will often place the central point or meaning of their message. So why will the Lord bring about judgment on all of his enemies? Now, it would definitely be good and right if God's entire plan was to lay low and punish arrogant humanity. That could have been his whole goal, but that is not his final goal. Even his judgments participate in a bigger plan to demonstrate his steadfast love and compassion. Our second point is this. God's judgment of his enemies is unto lifting up and securing his people. This oracle is still looking both at the near future, what relates to the current Babylonian empire, and also looking at the distant future. We first see that God is graciously already promising Judah's return from exile, that they will be planted in their land, that they will outlast Babylon, that they will see its fall. He's promising this even before they've been removed from the land, even as the sin is mounting up, which will deserve that punishment. But even as it points to this near fulfillment for Judah, for Israel, this also points again to the eternal lasting hope of God's people on the other side of God's great acts of judgment. God promises that his judgments, which bring down his enemies, will do so, so that God can positively reverse the fortunes of his people. Instead of captives, they become captors. Instead of exiles, they become rooted forever in the place God gives them. Instead of being conquered, they become conquerors. Eternal rest in Israel. And as a part of this restoration, God is going to bring in sojourners from all over the world. Instead of taking God's people into exile, the peoples will make God's people secure. And we'll even ask to join, to attach, to unite themselves with God's people. The nations will become the possession of God's people. They will become a part of their household. This echoes God's first promise 
that he made to Israel in the Exodus. Even as they were fleeing from Egypt, Israel's terrible oppressor, the Egyptians were invited to join God's people in the Exodus and receive a place in the promised land as though they were natives. History will end with those who seemed like its victims. God's seemingly little people tossed about by powers now established as the eternal kingdom of God. No longer victims of the nations. The nations come and ask for a place among them. Why does God promise this outcome for history? Why does God promise even as Judah is sinning its way to exile? Why is he promising it will include the nations even as he is issuing oracles of judgment to them? Because God did not design history to end with a proud people exalting themselves and each other. God is not interested in a history through which we demonstrate to him how great we are. All that we know, all that we can do, all that we can be. God's plan for history ends with God bringing low everyone who has exalted themselves so that he can lift up a humbled, undeserving people to whom he has shown compassion. And his righteous judgment on so many sinners shows all the more clearly that those who remain only do so because God is compassionate. God does not end history with a people glorifying the power of human achievement. It ends with a people who glorify a saving God. It is a history that God has authored to lift up the name of Jesus. In the passage that Caleb read this morning, Jesus praised God for this plan, for his will in this plan. God's salvation was rejected by the wise. From those who exalted their own wisdom and power, their own Babylonian spirit, they couldn't see Jesus' salvation when it was offered because of their own pride. But while this salvation was hidden from them, it was clear to little children. It was immediately obvious and welcomed by the weak and the humble and the dependent. And to them, Jesus extends rest. The gospel of Jesus is a delight to the humble who have given up their confidence in themselves, but it is an embarrassment to the proud. Because it tells you, look at all of your best, most proud moments. Those are your towers of Babel. All of your best works, all of your wise plans, little rebellions against God to make a name for yourself. But if you trust in the compassion of God, if you admit that you are weak and heavy laden, unable to accomplish anything except deserving that judgment on the day of the Lord, then Jesus says, then just come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you eternal rest. Jesus came and went to the cross and felt that day of the Lord judgment and wrath. So that if you trust in him, he will lift you up and say, I have taken all of that. I have taken that suffering for you so that you can be welcomed into the rest that I deserve. Our passage continues with this humble people whom God has lifted up to become conquerors. And now they are singing a victory song 
over all of those powers and enemies that tried to make them afraid. All those enemies who have now also seen their fortunes sadly reversed. Let's read, starting at 14, verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter has come up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the earth. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let the prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. This word of taunt is not so much cruel jeering as a long proverb, which is meant to explain the reality of something. Again, this song rightly points to the historical fall of Babylon. And again, it points to the ultimate fall of every arrogant enemy that opposes God and his people right up to the consequences of the day of the Lord. The king of Babylon was often called the day star or the son of dawn. It's one of those titles like people are always giving to rulers to try and insist that their leadership somehow makes them higher above everyone around them. History has seen many day stars, many sun kings, many god emperors, men and women trying to look like they don't live among us. They don't live like us. They invent mythologies for themselves. They're up there pretending that they live in the heavens on a higher plane. They're almost divine and we only get to see them on the news. We treat rulers and dictators 
the people that we've only seen on television or in newspapers. We treat celebrities even like they are not made of the same mortal stuff as the rest of us. But they are lying. Do you know how God proves it to everyone? How is it proven that Pharaoh and Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan and Napoleon and Chairman Mao were the same as you and I? Where are they now? Isaiah tells us, watch what happens when they die. The earth rejoices and the grave mocks. First, creation throws a party. The trees were sick of supplying their war efforts. A desert of desolation was growing in their arrogance. They were trying to act like gods, these kings and these emperors, but they become anti-gods. Instead of creating, they can only destroy. Instead of carrying out God's plan for dominion, all that they can do is rush and run over others for the sake of their own power. They could only subvert God's design. And both humanity and creation, when they go, is happy to be rid of them. And humanity looks upon their body. That same dust that all the rest of us were made from, now no different from any other corpse. If anything, more dishonored for how much everyone despised them. But if creation is thrilled that these people are gone, Sheol, the grave, is very pleased to receive them. Because the grave is the place where every person who made much of themselves is finally confronted with who they are. The grave is the great equalizer. And those who reject God will finally and eternally in hell understand the reality of themselves. Sheol prepares a welcome party for the king of Babylon. It forces up all of its old dead kings. Get up, get off your thrones, get up. It opens the windows. Go, go, go meet. Your new roommate is here. These kings, they come out to meet the new guy and they tell him, look at you. You're just as pathetic as we are. Here we all are together. Sheol is mocking its new tenants. Who are you? Oh, you're the day star of Babylon. Oh, you're the son of the dawn. Oh, you ascended to the heights. Look at you now. Look at you now, Stalin. Look at you now, Attila the Hun. Tell me again, how many people did you conquer? How much land did you rule over? That's amazing. Where did it get you? Oh, it got you here. Weak, powerless, lost, crushed under the wrath of God. Crushed underneath those little humble people that you mocked all your life. Now Sheol says... Prepare the best place for his royal highness. A bed of maggots, only the softest. Just watch out, they pop. As the song closes, Isaiah says that God will cut off even the posterity of Babylon, lest they fill the world with their cities. This is meant to point back to that first judgment on Babel, when God looked down on that great vain monument to humanity and in a moment scattered and confused all their efforts. God can, in a moment, destroy the legacy of Babylon and leave its king without a grave to lie in. Power changed just like that. And God can, any moment he chooses, put an end to the proudest, mightiest endeavors of humanity. It is all in God's hand. Caleb read 
Jesus reiterating this same warning that's given to the king of Babylon, now to the cities that reject him and the gospel. They were too proud to see the Messiah, even when he was in his midst, deliberately performing signs so that they would have every reason to trust in him. And still they rejected him. Still they lifted up themselves. They didn't want him. This warning belongs to every proud heart. To each of us who bristles to hear that we are sinners. Despite the evidence that we give of it every single day. Each of us that would choose. A low bar, a high bar, any bar. Just give me a bar that I have to meet to just try and prove that I can earn my way before God or men. I don't care, just give me something rather than to have to depend on someone else to save me. We hate that. We hate it even as we read the testimony of God sending Jesus Christ to die and rise again that is already accomplished even as salvation is being freely offered to us. We reject it. So Isaiah's warning is for every single opponent of God from the beast down to the least, they will absolutely, definitely meet the same humiliating, sticky end as the king of Babylon. And God's people who humbly trusted in Jesus will be lifted up and welcomed into his rest. Friend, how amazing, how life-changing, how world-changing do you think that it would be if we actually saw and lived in the reality of this before we died. When we attach ourselves to the world, to what we love and what we fear here, we give power to these proud, power-hungry people. We give them the power that they think they have, that they want to have. In our anxiety, we are agreeing with Putin and Pelosi and Bezos and Xi Jinping, and even Trudeau, that they have the power that they want, the power that they think they do. Even when we give them our trust, when we go looking for hope in Trump or Biden or Musk or Bernier or Mickey Mouse, when we turn them into our day stars and our sun kings, we are telling them that they are who they think they are. Even though you and I know that they are nothing more or less to God than you. They are people who will participate in God's perfect plan for history, whether they like it or not. And they can either cast themselves upon the true king of the universe, or they can live in arrogant opposition to God and one day hear Sheol sing its song over them. What is more, when we are consumed by cultural anxiety, by fear of the people of this world, or when all our hope is bound up in them, when we go looking for people to save our culture, whether we hate these people, whether we depend on them, we show that our hearts are bound up in the same things as theirs. We are so desperate to cling to the things that they can take from us or to the things that they can offer us. We are showing that if we had the same power that they did, we might act a little bit more like them than we would like to think. If our hearts are so caught up, constantly controlled, looking for rest or feeling anxiety, always over worldly, cultural people and movements, this should be a warning 
to consider whether we have the same Babylonian heart that they do. If your fear or your dependence of this world exposes your own proud heart, exposes what you've trusted in, then hear it as a call to repent before the day of judgment. Isaiah tells us, just as Jesus tells us, there's only one who you should fear. And it is also the one who invites you to trust in him as your only hope. Because he is the one who holds the eternal outcome of history surely in his hand. As Jesus said, stop fearing those who at worst can kill the body. Fear the one who can bring about this real and lasting death in hell. He is the one worthy of your fear. And he is the only one worthy of your trust. And he extends to you a trust worth hoping in. Worldly men want us to trust in them so that they can lord themselves over us. God desires our trust because he has already given us a king who died for us. Jesus could have been the king that the kings of Babylon were desperate to become. He could have been the king that all of these emperors claim they will when they gave themselves lofty titles. The devil tempted him with exactly this offer knowing that Jesus could reach out and take it. And Jesus rejected it so he could live a life with no place to lay his head so that he could serve us, so that he could suffer for us, so that he could die in the place that we deserved. On the other side of death, all of those self-exalting kings of this world are welcome to Sheol with a bed of maggots and worms. On the other side of death, Jesus rose again and was seated on an eternal throne. And because he is still such a good king, he invites us to be united with him in his reign, just as he was united with us in death. So if Sheol has no song that it can sing over Jesus, and your trust is in him, then Sheol has no song that it can sing over you we instead get to taunt death itself. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where is your victory? Isaiah is so eager that his hearers would take their trust off of worldly things and trust in this perfect eternal plan even now, rest in it even now, knowing that victory is already obtained in Christ even as it is being carried out. We see this, um, this desire that we would trust in these promises in the next few verses, where the Lord suddenly starts talking now, finally, to Assyria. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains, Trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, who, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This is the word of the Lord. Rather than getting its own oracle, an oracle for Assyria, Assyria, the current power threatening Judah, finds its warning tacked on 
as a little appendix to the warning against Babylon. Babylon had not yet risen to power. They had not yet taken Judah into exile. So there is good reason that this little appendix is put here. God adds this promise, which is actually going to be fulfilled in the near future. Assyria, the current reigning empire, the current ones with the Babylonian spirit, would certainly fall. God gives his people this promise as an assurance that they can trust him for all of those greater, later promises that he also makes here. Do you see, he says that in these verses. Watch what happens to Assyria and you will know my purposes for the whole earth. He's teaching us how to look at his prophecies and expect near and far fulfillments. To look at what he has brought about and understand how that will point towards the greater eternal purposes and fulfillments. God is helping us to rest when we see those first things have come about and know that so too will everything he has said absolutely happen. So we close with this point from Isaiah. God's people are meant to be assured and confident that they rest in his fulfilled promises. Dear friends, the world is wrong when it says that faith is belief without evidence or that faith is belief against evidence. Yes, faith is trusting in what we cannot see. It is trusting in what we hope for. But our God desires that our faith would rest on much evidence. That our faith would truly be that thing that it would only be a fool's choice to deny. The Bible rests God's promises upon his character, upon his works, the testimonies of what he has done, and upon the promises that he has kept. The Bible is comprised of hundreds of prophecies and fulfillments which build upon each other to increase our confidence in God's sure eternal word. The birth of Isaac, the exodus, entering the promised land, defeating the Canaanites, the return from exile, all of these were promised. And when each promise was fulfilled, it was meant to be a guarantee that the promises not yet kept would also surely come about. This means each time God's people lose confidence that he will keep a promise, it becomes more and more foolish to do so based upon the increasing number of promises that they have seen kept. This is also true of God's promise to judge and humble all opposition to him. It was already foolish in Isaiah's day to be afraid of Assyria and Babylon after God had already kept his promises to defeat Egypt and the Canaanites. And today, as God's name is still being proclaimed, while Babylon and Persia and the Roman Empire are just distant memories, how foolish is it to agree with the world that Christianity is some unstable, backward, little human creation which the human spirit can overcome. How foolish is it? After thousands of years of the name of God being proclaimed, to suddenly think that it would be better to put your trust anywhere else. Friends, we know what will happen at the end of time but we do not know everything that will happen tomorrow. Are you ready? When the whole world panics because of the next great threat that we do not know about, which will try and unseat our hope and our confidence, will you be ready? Were you ready 
when COVID came? Were you ready when the threat of war became imminent? Were you ready when society started to turn on biblical righteousness? Will you be ready to rest unshakably at peace in God's promises when the next thing comes? And it will come until the Lord returns. When that next leader in the mold of Babylon threatens you. When the world oppresses you and mocks God and tries to raise up its next tower of Babel. Are you ready to trust in and rest in the only king whose word surely comes true? He's the only king that can make promises on the other side of death. Eternal promises. He's the king who has kept every promise so far and he has made many He's the only king whose promises will stand for all eternity. He is the king to fear, and he is the king to trust in. And praise God, he is the king who will reign in perfect love and righteousness forever and ever. Put your trust in Jesus. Leave your trust in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know that we live in a world that is desperate for stability, desperate for prosperity, desperate for security. We see this in the sheer panic that we see on both sides of the political spectrum, on both sides of every issue, that desperation to hold on to the things of the world, to put our trust in men, to put our trust in what we have. Father, that spirit of the Tower of Babel is still moving and it still tempts our hearts. So, Father, as we look upon your word, upon every promise you have kept, upon every promise you are keeping, may we trust in every promise that you have made and surely will keep. May we know the end for history. May we fear the day of the Lord, that judgment, and may it lead to repentance. Anyone here who thinks that it is somehow better to trust in the next flickering and fleeting thing that people are treating like it is the new great hope. God, may this be rest and assurity for the people of God. And we thank you that the end of your plan, which could have ended in the judgment we all deserved, ends with rest for your people. And we praise you that Jesus bore the cross and bore the wrath that we deserved to offer that future to undeserving sinners. We praise our Lord and King Jesus. Amen. And lift our hearts.